Well, amen. Aaron, I think Psalm 3 may be my new favorite song. Um, Thank you for that. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense, never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Anybody know who I just quoted? Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill said it on that day, uh, in, in October of 1941 in the midst of Britain's involvement in World War II. But I think those words would have fit really nicely here in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. Uh, because it's the same attitude. They, they have that same fist-pumping force that I think Paul is, is sharing his... Uh, Displeasure with the Galatians. Uh, They've got the same intense passion behind them that he had uh, in regards to his conviction for the gospel. And they also express the the depth of his love to those who are reading it. And tonight we find ourselves in the first ten verses of chapter 2. Uh, which are a part of this autobiographical section that we started this week, or last week. Um, Paul, having expressed that, that fist-pumping anger uh, regarding the retreat of the Galatians, right? They've retreated from the gospel, but more than that, the Christ of the gospel. So he's, he's expressed that. He's also been very clear uh, that his Christ-centered gospel that he believes and preaches... And that God-centered salvation that he was bearing witness to, uh, as well as um, that the God-glorifying response that people were having because of his message and ministry. All of those things pointed to the fact that he was pleasing God and not man. So having accomplished all that, he does something here. He does a couple things at once. The first is he answers the attacks that have been levied against him. But even more important than that, he clarifies that the confusion regarding whether justification is by faith alone in Christ alone or by Christ alone and our works. Uh, he, he says that that's been addressed already by the church as a whole. And brothers and sisters, it's my hope that as we walk through these ten verses uh, that we will uh, we see Paul's description of his unwill, uh, unwillingness to shrink back from that force of the Judaizers. We will see his unwillingness to yield to the, their overwhelming might and their argument. And that in the end, we as well, that we will see that as a call for us. As we stand firm. In the truth of the gospel. Uh, The outline is in the back of your bulletin tonight. There are four things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the accusation of the Judaizers. We're going to look at the validation of Paul's ministry and message. The preservation of the gospel. And then finally the addition 
of the poor. And before we begin, or before we pray, I just I want to say I'm going to make reference to Acts chapter 15 a few times tonight. And I wish we had time for me to read that passage as well. Um, but I'm not going to be able to do that. Uh, but I do, though there is some debate, I do believe that Paul's description here in Galatians 2 is actually the same de- description that Luke gives us in Acts 15 of the Jerusalem Council. And so my encouragement to you would be, because I'm going to reference it several times, that you will go home sometime this week and be Berean-like and take um, Acts 15 and Galatians 2 and make sure as you read them together that what I'm telling you tonight is true. Okay? I have, I have no problem saying that. Um, but let's, before we, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you uh, for tonight. We thank you for this, uh, our time of gathering around your word. Uh, I pray that you would, as I already have prayed with the children, that you would give us eyes uh, to hear, or eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that is found there. Um, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and we ask you to now speak through that. That we might be changed, that we might be different as we leave. We desire to see Jesus. So grant us that now in these moments. And and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, part of what the Judaizers have been doing, part of their attempt to persuade the Galatians to uh, not listen to Paul is to in some way discredit him. And so they've been discredited. They, I can't say discrediting, I just did it. Uh, they, they are discrediting him uh, by saying that he doesn't have any authority. And they're saying he doesn't have any authority because he wasn't really an apostle. And he wasn't really an apostle because uh, he hadn't been appointed by anybody in Jerusalem. And because his ministry was in question, his message was also in question. And because his message was in question, uh, the gospel was in question. And, and really the bottom line for the Judaizers was he hasn't been empowered by those powers that be in Jerusalem. And so he, Paul was basically a lone ranger uh, doing things his own way apart from the apostles. And he didn't need to be listened to. And as a result, they said his, he shouldn't be listened to because his, his message or his gospel was only half right. They were conceding the fact that we, uh, as believers, come uh, to, to be believers, come to be Christians by placing our faith in Christ. Uh, but they weren't satisfied with it being in Christ alone. They, they added to the fact and said that he was only preaching half a gospel because they believed that you also had to show forth works. That you had to be not only saved by faith, but by, faith, or by works uh, in the law. And actually, what's interesting is over time, what, what they began with, they began saying, look, have your faith in Christ, come, come to faith in Christ, but you also must be circumcised. But as is the case with all legalists, it didn't take long before that, that, began to in, that list began to increase. And so here's the first reference to Acts 15. In Acts 15 verses 1 to 5, and, and verses 1 and 5 in particular, we see it, that right there before us that that list increases. In verse 1 it says that they desired for those who come to faith to be circumcised. And in verse 5 it says that they wanted them to not only be circumcised, but to follow the entire law. Legalists are never, ever satisfied. But Paul comes forward to answer that argument. And he says that, well, I I know what they're saying, but actually my message, the gospel, has been validated in Jerusalem. You know, I may not have been appointed by or authorized by the apostles 
I, might, I may not, I heard this week, it was a great way to put it. I may not be from them, but I am with them. So let's look at that validation beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 3 and then skip down and read six, uh, verses 6 to 9. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And I went up because of a revelation and, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential... The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And then in verse 6, it says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry uh, to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now, again, we mentioned last week that Paul declared and really certified that that the gospel that he had been preaching was not a man-made gospel because it was not something that had been taught to him by other men. Uh, It wasn't something that he learned um, or had been passed on by some sort of human tradition. It was divine revelation about Christ from Christ. It wasn't something that he had learned in some sort of didactic or discipleship type of relationship So he began to preach, and that was something that began on the road to Damascus, and then had continued those three following years, and then he began to travel and to preach. And it wasn't long before the Judaizers started following him around and trying to undermine the message that he had been preaching. So Paul says that around approximately around a year before he writes this letter, uh, that he uh, was told divinely to go to Jerusalem to share with the apostles and elders there that gospel that he had been preaching. And because it's very, very important that we understand that he was divinely sent, because what that says is that Paul wasn't trying to choose sides. He wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't his idea, and he wasn't trying to choose up sides. He wasn't trying to go anywhere and to whine about how, uh, how bad people had been treating him. Um, he, he was going because the Lord had told him to go. And the Lord had a specific purpose for him to go because he said, I wanted to make sure that I was not preaching in vain. And really what he's saying is he was going to make sure that the Judaizers weren't going to, um, the Judaizers were telling the Galatians that those in Jerusalem were actually undermining the message of Paul. So Paul was going to Jerusalem to make sure that that was not taking place. And we say, well, that seems pretty audacious. But the the truth of the matter is, if we remember chapter 1. Paul says that if anybody teaches a different gospel, they're to be considered anathema. And Paul included himself in that group, as well as angels. And brothers and sisters, the apostles are included in that. If the apostles had been preaching a different gospel than Paul was preaching, they were to be or would have been considered anathema. And so Paul is going to make sure that that's not taking place. Because he didn't want what he was doing. He didn't want them undermining what he had been doing. And so he wisely takes Barnabas, who's a Jew. And then he also takes Titus, who's a Greek. We can kind of see where he's going with who he's taking. 
Uh, both of whom are walking illustrations of the grace of God. They're walking illustrations of, of the transforming nature of the gospel, both to Jew and to Greek. So Paul says when they arrived, they met with those who seemed influential. And he says that three times. And then he adds the words seem to be pillars when he's talking about James, Paul, uh, James Peter, and John. And some take that to, to mean or, or believe that he's being sarcastic or snippy in some way, but he's not doing that at all. Paul isn't being disrespectful to the apostles or the elders or the apostles themselves because what he's actually doing is taking a swipe at the Judaizers. And we know that because we know and we've seen we see throughout the scripture that the roles of the apostles were very, very important. Uh, as a matter of fact, we see even in in Acts chapter two, you know, they are the, the apostles were God ordained leaders of the church. And in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, the believers began to gather. And, and in Acts two, uh, somewhere between thirty nine and, and forty four, it says that the people would gather right and give themselves and listen to the teaching and dedicate themselves to the teaching of the, of the apostles. So he's not trying to discredit the apostles in any way. And we also know that in Ephesians, he calls the apostles the foundation of the church, of which Christ is the cornerstone. So when we take all of Scripture together, we know that Paul's not trying in some way to be snippy toward them. But what the Judaizers were doing is they were taking, uh, they, they were using the apostles... To try to justify their own positions of influence. They were attempting to take those, uh, to take the apostles, uh, they would name drop and they would do other sorts of things with the Galatians to make sure they know we're from the apostles, Paul is not. We're coming from the influential ones, Paul's not. And so what Paul tries to say to them is he, he looks and as he's writing, he's telling the Galatians, look, I've met with those who have in, who seem to have influence, who they are saying have all the influence, and they don't agree with the Judaizers, they agree with me. They're not on the side of the Judaizers, they're on my side. And not only did they verify what I said, they believe what I said, they're preaching what I said, they didn't correct us, they didn't add anything to our message. They didn't take away from our message. James, Peter, and John said that they were all together for the gospel. That we were all in this together. They even said Peter would go to the Jews and I would go to the Gentiles. And though we would go to different contexts, the message was still the same. And then he makes this statement. And he said, and by the way, if you want to make sure who's telling the truth... Titus has not been circumcised. In other words, if the Judaizers were right, I took Titus to Jerusalem. They didn't make Titus be circumcised like the Judaizers are trying to make you to be circumcised. Who's on the right side of this? I'd like to pause for just a minute just because of where we are um, well, I'll explain in just a minute, but I, I want to remind ourselves of something that I think is really, really important and something that I've come to treasure. And that is uh, one of the hallmarks of being Presbyterian is being connected to other churches. Um, as a matter of fact, when people ask for support of our connectedness, the foundational passage is Acts 15. And this Jerusalem council that Paul's referring to in Galatians 2 
Uh, we as a local church are not on an island. Uh, we uh, are not autonomous. Uh, we are not without oversight and accountability uh, and support. We are a part of a larger whole. And we gather regularly as they did it in Jerusalem to take care of church matters. We do so as a presbytery. All of Oklahoma and North, uh, Northwest Arkansas and Southwest Missouri. We gather together three times a year. And then... Uh, as, a, um, as the PCA, as a, we meet as a general assembly. All the presbyteries gather together um, once a year, and we're doing that um, next week. And when we gather, we, um, we discuss issues and we di- decide upon certain things, issues that come up, striving to maintain the peace and purity of the church. And it's in those gatherings... Um, where we see that connectedness, right? we, we, we know it exists, but it's in those meetings that we see that connectedness. But we're not only connected presently, we're connected historically. We're connected presently with other churches, but we're also connected historically through our confession of faith, through our standards. Through the, confession, through the Westminster Confession of Faith and through the larger and shorter catechisms, you know, we are bound with those of our past. And, and by being bound and connected to them, it assures, it assures us and it assures others that the faith that we proclaim and defend is, in Jude's words, the faith that was handed down once for all to the saints. And so I, I pause there because we see that going on here and the importance of that as the church as a whole decides that Paul's gospel is correct and that justification is by faith alone. And that should give us confidence as, as we remain connected. And it should also provide us adv- an advantageous talking point as we share with others and describe our church in the midst of a very fiercely individualistic culture. In the midst of a celebrity-oriented evangelical culture in which leaders are leaving a wake of casualties in their path. We have the hope of our we have the hope of Christ and we have the hope of his church, and for us that church is connected to one another. Uh, and, and I would, by the way, ask you to pray for us uh, a week from uh, Wednesday as we begin meeting in Dallas. Well, that brings us to the preservation of the gospel. Uh, Verses 4 and 5. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, to Paul, the Judaizers, and we see it right here in his language, the Judaizers were false brothers. They were professing professing Christians, but because they were not holding to a true gospel, because they were holding to a false gospel, Paul considered them to be false believers. In other words, Paul believed firmly that it was not possible to deny the sufficiency and success of Christ and his work on the behalf of believers and believe in the merit of of our work as, as men and women. And still be a Christian. 
To Paul, the truth of the gospel was that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And any additions, subtractions, or substitutions meant the message wasn't true. And therefore, it was an attack on the freedom we have in Christ. But to the Judaizers, that freedom in Christ was nothing more than, it's, it's a large word, but it's a word, that, it's antinomianism. And basically what they believed was that Paul was against the law. He didn't like the law. He disregarded the law. And as a result, because of that lawlessness in their minds, it was leading people. His, his preaching was leading people down a road of licentiousness. In other words, it was leading them to loose and immoral living. And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to rein everybody in. And so much so they felt it necessary to kind of sneak into this meeting. They wanted to hear Paul sharing that anti, what they were considering an antinomian message. But Paul, Paul answered their attack with an emphatic no. There was no mistaking Paul's response. He saw their reigning in as bondage. And he saw it as bondage because he knew that the law could not do what they wanted it to do. The law only condemns. It does not save. Paul knew that it had no power to produce what it demanded. Paul knew... That it might produce moral choices in the short term. He knew it might change behavior in the short term. But it would not last over time because it did not have the power to change the heart. Which was necessary to see long term change in behavior. And so for him to be constrained to follow the law. For our justification, to make ourselves right with God, he knew that that was binding, binding people to a standard that would not be obtained because it could not be obtained. It was impossible. So Paul proclaimed... Adamantly defended salvation by faith alone. And as I was talking to the children, it wasn't something that he was going to be talked out of. Nothing was going to change his mind. His message was faith alone in the one to whom the law pointed. His message was faith alone in the one who fulfilled the curse of the law. On our behalf, the one who fulfilled every jot and tittle of it on our behalf. His message was faith alone that rested in Christ alone, who was sufficient, whose work was sufficient, who actually succeeded in his work without any assistance from man. He was adamant. And he was so adamant that he said, We did not yield, not for one moment. Now, you see where. Where Churchill's words would have fit right there. Not one moment. Not a second. 
We never, you can hear him speak, we never considered changing our minds. We never, never considered working out some sort of deal. We never, never considered compromising or negotiating. We never considered, you know what, we'll give a little on circumcision if you give a little on the dietary laws. He said it's all or nothing. No negotiation. He was unyielding in his preservation of the gospel. He was unyielding in his preservation of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And his not yielding wasn't so that, as we said last week again, it wasn't so that he could gather a following. He wasn't trying to be prominent in this new, in this new movement that was taking place that had nothing to do with it. We read right here, we did not yield that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul had Christ in mind. Paul had the Galatians in mind. And brothers and sisters, the church today faces this same group of people. We face the same group of people today believing that Christianity is nothing more than behavioral modification. We face it every day and people who who hate freedom in Christ. They fear a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. Because they believe and they're fearful that that sort of message, that freedom in Christ is going to lead people to the same end that the the Judaizers thought that it would lead. Believing that it would lead to licentiousness and immoral living and, and loose living. And unfortunately today they, they sneak into churches and they do that through attendance. They do that through now with, through podcasts and, and through books. And they begin to wreak havoc and they do so in a couple of ways. One, they begin to promote a Christ plus or faith plus works gospel that includes both the written law and their own uh, man-made traditions and rules that will lead people to elicit or that will elicit behaviors that are found on their own self-determined list of appropriate behaviors that are necessary to both be saved and maintain their salvation. And we, know, and we know what many of them are. I don't have to list them. Uh, the, the list in many ways is the same as it's always been. There have been some things that have been removed and other things that have been added. But over time, it's been pretty consistent. There are things that we should do and there are things that we should abstain from. And, but but those, lists, the, those lists change, right? Not, not in terms of over time, but they change from, from church to church. And denomination to denomination and city to city and state to state and country to country and ethnicity to ethnicity. And there's no way to keep it all straight. But the second thing they do is they find those within the church who are taking advantage of and even abusing their freedom in Christ. And their desire is to set them up as poster children as to why they're right. They're going to find those who who are that don't fully understand their freedom in Christ and so they and they want to use them to prove no see this is what happens when you preach a salvation by grace alone through faith alone and what we have to do is what Paul did we have to not yield we have to not yield for a moment. We must maintain, maintain the truth that Christianity is not a matter of uh, behavioral modification. It's a matter of spiritual transformation. 
It's not about people who can, uh, what people can do to make themselves better, but about how Christ has set sinners free from the guilt and power of sin that so easily entangles all of us. We must maintain the truth that the problem with those who are abusing their freedom in Christ, it's the problem, brothers and sisters, the problem is not the message. The problem is not Christ's work on our behalf. The problem is immaturity, spiritual immaturity and sin. And we must treat it as such. We must never consider changing our minds. We must never consider making any kind of concessions. We should never negotiate. We should be unyielding in our preservation of the gospel truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we should never, 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 never give in. And that brings us to verse 10. Having made a well, a really sound and complete argument for the gospel, Paul says this. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And despite the attempt of some to say that, well, see, this is a... Uh, this was this was a substitute for circumcision. See, so so what the what the Jews or what the, the apostles were saying is, okay, we're not going to hold the Gentiles to circumcision. We're going to hold them to taking care of the poor, and and that's not the case. It wasn't a substitution in any way. They weren't trying to. Again, there was no negotiation. Taking care of the poor wasn't an it wasn't an addition, and, and it wasn't. Well, I'll move on. It was, it was actually necessary fruit of the gospel. It was necessary fruit. And, and I believe really what's going on here, I think the, the apostles were writing, or the apostles were telling uh, Paul at this point to, to not let happen what had happened already in Acts 6. If you remember in Acts 6, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews were having a problem because their widows were not being taken care of physically. And so they asked the, the church that they said, all right, we want you to get uh, together seven, seven men full of wisdom and the Spirit. And we want you guys to take care of the physical needs of the wid- widows so that we, as apostles, can dedicate ourselves to, the pray- to prayer and to the preaching of the Word. We don't want the widows to be neglected anymore. And I, I believe that that is that's what the apostles are telling Paul here is, you know, the preaching of the gospel is utmost of utmost importance. But don't forget the physical needs of those around you. And you say, well, why would he say that? Well, this is why we go again back to Acts 15. Because in Acts 15, Luke says that the apostles, once they had made their decision, decide to send a letter to those who were being harassed by the Judaizers. And this is the last part of that letter. It says, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Now, again, there are people that say, well, wait a minute. This it sure does sound like. That the apostles are saying it's faith in Christ and these things. 
And that's, again, that's not what's happening here. What, what the apostles are, are telling Paul is that, or telling those who are going to receive this letter, writing this letter that, that is going to be sent to them, he's saying, you have been justified in Christ. You have been saved, and having been united to Christ, you should no longer be involved in the pagan practices that you are used to being involved in. As believers in Christ, you have been justified by Christ. But as a result of that justification, don't involve yourselves in those things that are going to defile your body. Don't be involved in those things. Don't be involved with the blood. And, and to use Paul's words in Corinthians, in other words, don't use or don't be involved in those things because you've been united with Christ. Don't be involved in those things that unite you with or put you in fellowship with demons. That's not how believers act. And it was a burden, if you remember at the time, that's a burden because the Galatians, in their livelihoods, were involved in, in um, they were involved in, in groups, um, in, in guilds, and that, that type of pagan worship was tied very closely to those guilds. So what would happen is, if they decided not to participate in the rituals, they couldn't work in the guilds, and if they couldn't work in the guilds, they didn't have any money. And so the, those in Jerusalem, the apostles are saying, listen, preach your gospel, but remember that those who respond to the gospel potentially are going to lose their jobs and you need to be ready to take care of them. And now we, we are all aware of the fact that in our context here in Northwest Arkansas, we, we don't have to worry about potential loss of employment due to our faith. Now, I, I've heard stories of that taking place. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. And it's probably going to happen more and more as we continue on. But at least for now, it's not as uh, it's it's not happening like it was happening then. But we do, however, we do, however, need to be aware of the fact that our context puts us in a little different position. And that position is that we could very easily fall back into and begin to take on the attitudes of the Judaizers. And their attitudes were ones of, you know, they were worried about perceptions and they were worried about position and they were worried about power and prominence and people pleasing and as they were taking on those attitudes, it began to affect them. It led to patterns of thinking and, and patterns of living. And, and if, if we're not careful, we can, we, we can fall into those attitudes. And then what it begins to affect is it begins to change our way of doing things and change our way of thinking when it, when it involves our evangelism. We can become selective in how we reach out evangelistically. For us, this call to remember the poor is to remember that the gospel is for everyone, not just the elite, not just those who are, who are working in the fifth and sixth floor of some of these buildings that currently exist and are going to exist in the future. It's not just for the well-to-do. 
It's a call to remember that we are to reach out to everyone. And here, here's, here's what we, we must keep in front of us. We must reach out to and take the gospel to those that can't give us anything in return. It's a call to love our neighbor spiritually and physically without thinking what's in it for us. And may that be the very thing that we're eager to do. Let's pray together.